Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia. Joined via Zoom by Deputy Editor Ben Travers and TV Awards Editor Libby Hill. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about The Queen's Gambit, Ben's top 10 TV shows of the year, and we're going to invite some guests on to tell us which shows they're most thankful for in 2020. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Guys, we are reporting, via other reporting, that The Queen's Gambit is the biggest scripted limited series in Netflix's history, launching to a record-breaking 62 million households over its first 28 days. Can you trust the numbers? Who knows? Uh, But additionally, apparently inquiries for chess chess sets have gone up 250%, uh, and some gaming sites have said that chess sales have increased 170%. So people are into chess all of a sudden, which I assume is all because of Queen's Gambit. There's no secondary uh, thing in the zeitgeist that's pushing chess on people. I mean, chess was a really... Chess was a really important metaphor in the West Wing reunion special that aired on HBO Max that everyone was talking about. So I think it's fair to say that at least 40% of the increase in chess general interest came from uh, revisiting Aaron Sorkin's classic of Hartsfield Land. But what should we take from these numbers? Obviously, we've talked before on the show about how Netflix is difficult to be. It's difficult to trust what, what numbers they're giving us, but... Uh, how do you read this, um, Ben and Libby? I mean, I, I read it personally as just like Netflix is happy with this show. So that means they will be happy with the people who made it, the people who started it and perhaps trust them to, to make more creative things. So like, I'm, I'm, it's very nice to see that they're, they're, uh, you know, supporting and proud of and happy with a very critically acclaimed show from um, you know, the, the stars uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is obviously about to do a lot of things that, that people will be interested in. Um, so Netflix being a business with her would be no surprise, but also Scott Frank, who you know took a show in Godless and turned that into an awards uh, success story, if not, who knows, ratings, but seemed like a rating success story as well, with a Western genre that usually goes underappreciated or you know, just kind of flagging in the back, and then did it again with a period piece chess drama uh you know i think he'll probably get to do whatever the hell he wants with netflix after this so um those things are very encouraging to see i again i don't know about the numbers but uh libby you have to tell us if chess is cool now i assume chess is cool now but i don't uh, know i mean i have to assume so um chess is definitely no i i don't know about chess anya taylor joyce cool like that that i can be assured of. the 60s is cool again i guess temporarily except for all of the bad stuff 
Um, I, you know, the Netflix's numbers, it's such a, like, like it, it, we don't know anything. We don't know how they're counting. We don't know what it really means. What I take it to mean is that uh, they've noticed, they've noticed a response to the show. Um, the viewership is probably higher than they expected for it. Um, I think Ben's right in, you know, it's a, it's a vote of confidence for everyone mm-hmm. involved. Um, it's just, um, I think they want to get the, the, I mean, those numbers out there. So it's something they can continue touting because it, it, it's in their interest to keep the Queen's Gambit narrative going, um, for the next nine months. And, and that's going to be tough. Um, so, you know, any information they can just continue to sort of breadcrumb is, is to be expected. Um, I don't know. I'm happy though. Like, I'm, I'm happy that it appeared to do so well insofar as we can trust the what's popular today feature on Netflix. Like, it clearly was at the top of their top 10 for weeks, several weeks after it, um, it debuted both uh, in the U.S. and globally. So, uh, you know, I don't have a ton of reason to, to fully just doubt what they're doing. It's not like they're saying, like, Dash and Lily had the highest numbers ever. You know, there there has to be some some kind of uh, hard numbers to back this up. But yeah, I don't know. I'm happy yeah, it about is, it. It is interesting that they, that, like, you know, because... They don't want to share their data. They obviously never want to share their data with third parties who could verify anything like that. They're not going to open up that door. The way that they seem to try to find legitimacy in the numbers they're reporting on their own is by sharing numbers of like how it's influenced the culture. So like chess sets, like you mentioned, being sold more is their way of saying, no, 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 you can trust us. Like this is a big hit. And I think that that part of it is true. I think you can say that the Queen's Gambit is a hit. I just don't want to take like the 62 million number and put it right up against other TV shows because that's irresponsible. So, well, and also Tiger King had 64 million. So, <laughs> you know, on numbers alone, that, that's obviously a better show. Well, Ben, now might be an opportune time to talk about uh, a, a list that you put out this week, uh, which doesn't feature Netflix's popular the queen's gambit nor does it feature tiger king your top 10 shows of 2020 um also suspiciously suspiciously missing uh, a show about uh, british football but we can talk about that later um <laughs> it got it got an honorable mention but we'll we'll talk about that later uh what can you tell us about putting a list like this together uh how many people yelled at you i know you did send an email out uh sort of saying like hey guys what's up what's missing but what what uh what is putting putting that list together like and and what was number one uh well well first of all uh let me just say that that all of the things you mentioned except Queen's Gambit are untrue. Tiger King does appear in the list at the near top, explaining <laughs> why documentaries are not a part of the consideration. Like how this is this is scripted only. We had to narrow it down somehow. We had to like kind of try to rein in the, the huge behemoth of general television of the year, 
and say we're going to focus on things that could be somewhat reasonably compared to each other. Uh, and Tiger King is the example of what wouldn't have been on the list anyway, whereas <laughs> City So Real is the example of what would have been on the list had documentaries been included. Ben, I read the article. You're quibbling with me. I am quibbling. It's not one of the ten bulleted points. That's what this I meant. This is very true. But that's also a, a, a means to explain why documentaries aren't listed and, and explain kind of the process of how we go into lists. Um, I would say first and foremost that I love lists. I find them incredibly valuable. I do think that they're an important thing to do at the end of the year. Obviously, they get out of control, and there's way too many to keep track of, and there's way too many that are um, kind of less thought through than I feel like we do with all, we try to do with our lists at the end of the year. Um, but for me, when it comes to the top ten, a lot of it is signifying, you know, first and foremost, whatever was you know, subjectively the best of the year. Um, it's also trying to highlight shows that maybe people overlooked or that weren't given their due, or it's uh, in short to me, never about saying these are the shows that defined the year. It's not like saying this is something that was the most watched. So we have to talk about it. It's literally trying to tell you, these are the shows that you need to be paying attention to, or that you should be paying attention to, or that genuinely um, accomplish something great in a, in a year when, who can keep track of what the fuck else is going on? Um, so yeah, I, I agonized a lot over how to make the list, whether it would be like a kind of a big group effort and everybody would kind of fight and, and determine a, a, a ranking of 10, whether it would be something some pseudo-personal that I would just do and, and kind of leave everybody off to the side. And I hope I found somewhat of a balance in between there that made people somewhat happy with the end results of, of this list representing IndieWire's top 10. Um, but, you know, to answer your, your main question and the one that usually uh, dogs people whenever they want to click on the link and scroll to the bottom and skip the 2,000 words of explanation, uh, <laughs> Better Things is the, the best show of the year. Um, I really don't think... I, there's there's obviously other shows, considering there's 10 on the list and eight more honorable mentions that were in consideration, but I do think that it's it's pretty, it was a pretty easy selection for me in terms of better things because this is a show that not only has been around for four seasons and done remarkable things over those four seasons, and obviously we've grown very attached to as a, as a trio, um, and uh, I've grown very attached to personally in terms of revisiting it and finding comfort in it, but also finding... Um, just beautiful creative decision-making in that, like, you never know what you're going to expect each week. It's a great show to watch weekly. It's also a great show to get absorbed in uh, for, you know, however long you need to, because you really do feel like you're part of that household and part of that community. Um, but watching Pamela Adlon kind of consistently find new means to tell her story and to push her character and herself forward in doing so uh, makes for incredibly gripping television. And it's also a great um, emblem of what I found to be one of the commonalities among TV's best shows this year in that it's a very empathetic show. It's a very show that encourages empathy, it encourages understanding, it, en it encourages a human connection. Um, and a lot of the shows on the list, I feel, do that very, very well. I felt like I May Destroy You, which is on the list, um, did that in its own unique way. I feel like in a romance like Normal People, you kind of see that as like a coming of age kind of story, similar to We Are Who We Are, which did a similar thing, coming of age and finding connections. Um, and again, like that may just be my personal bias in infiltrating the list 
and that is what I'm responding to because that's what I'm lacking. But I do feel like that's a kind of universal idea right now at this point when we're doing this over Zoom for the last seven months. We all need a connection and TV could provide that uh, when it was at its best. So I do think that's kind of the commonality. Um, but, you know, Ted Lasso did that too. So it could have been in the 10. And I'm really sorry. It was very close. I wanted it to be in there. I wanted it to be in the 10. I just couldn't quite bump the Babysitter's Club or Pea Valley. Like, those are great shows. And frankly, they just, they needed a little more attention right now than Ted Lasso does, which has already got three seasons on lock. So, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. And a, and a bunch of future Emmy wins. You know, we're, that's bunch. what's going to happen. You, you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, well, Ben, it's 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 at the bring up some of the other shows that, that were in the in the running but didn't get uh, get picked for the top ten because for this episode we actually invited some of our fellow staffers to tell us which shows they were most thankful for in 2020 and help them through this absolute garbage dumpster fire of a year. Uh, we we invited Kristen Lopez, who's a TV editor, uh, Ryan Latangio, who's our weekend editor, and. The always reliable Steve Green, the recommendation machine, <laughs> to to tell us what what shows they were thankful for, and then maybe at the end we'll throw uh, we'll give each other a minute to say what else we're thankful for. Though you just talked about better things for a long time. Do you have another show you're gonna stump for, Ben? Uh, Ryan Latanzio, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we're just gonna get started. Uh, tell us about my brilliant friend and why Ben Travers is an idiot. Well, I don't think Ben Travers is an idiot, but I was compelled to come on the podcast because there, there was some comment on social media about his uh, 10 best shows of the, the year list and how my brilliant friend wasn't on there. And I believe it's because Ben didn't watch it. But also Ben watches a lot of stuff. And this show, uh, it's an intimidating monolith in some ways to, to take on. Um, you know, because it's based on this very popular series of uh, novels by Elena Ferrante called the Neapolitan Novels. And, uh, you know, I came up against this, I, you know, a couple of years ago when I read those books, I was part of a book club and we were going to read all four of them. And the, the book club for the first book, which is called My Brilliant Friend, went very well. Um, and then when it was time to host the second book club, which was hosting it at my apartment, for the second book called The Story of a New Name, which is the basis of this season of My Brilliant Friend that aired this year, no one showed up. So like people were just fatigued or intimidated by this idea of getting into such a long form project perhaps. Um, but as far as this show is concerned, like there, you know, when I was covering it on the website, there was a lot of engagement in the comments. So it really does have an ardent uh, fan. I just don't know if it's in the US. Um, case uh you know for, this season of my brilliant friend uh was oh i was say, you gonna for, say for, something yeah for those for the uninitiated could you sort of like sum up at least my brilliant friend as a series and then like what this season why why you're thankful that it exists sure yeah um well neapolitan novels um and now that a third season of the hbo show has been greenlit i assume they'll complete the whole story um, it is a saga that follows um, these two um, uh, best friends uh, through their lives in Naples and elsewhere in Italy. And it's these two young women and they have a very complicated relationship. They're kind of the light, the light and dark to each other. And they're sort of always one-upping each other and they're sleeping with the same people and they're chasing the same opportunities. Um, 
And, you know, one of them, uh, Leela, she's kind of a more, I mean, they're from a working class community, but Linu ends up going to school. She becomes a famous writer, whereas Leela ends up working in a factory and like, uh, you know, is extremely intelligent, but doesn't get all the same opportunities that Linu does. And so throughout the whole uh, series, uh, it's sort of the two of them, uh, like I said, sort of one-upping each other. Um, and this season uh, is certainly the most soap operatic of uh, the, the series of novels, and I would assume for the rest of the show, um, because there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of betrayal, and because basically what happens is this young political radical who basically, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here, but he's basically like a fuck boy. Uh, he is uh, introduced into their lives and they're both in love with him. And so they're both sort of competing for him and it all sort of comes to a head uh, in this double bill of episodes that are set on an island called Ischia that are directed by Alice Rohrwalker, who uh, is an Italian filmmaker that some of you may know. And she's also the life partner of Severio Costanzo, who's the, um, the showrunner. Um, and really, this is just a beautiful series that um, pulls a lot of inspiration from cinematic history. Uh, you know, this season really was inspired by the French New Wave, and uh, Costanzo and his team are really uh, uh, experimental in how they approach it. And he has sort of a different, you know, where so many shows feel like there has to be aesthetic consistency through the whole season, Costanzo has sort of a different idea in that, you know, why don't we bring in different voices who have different aesthetic points? Yeah, I'm just thankful that it exists. And I just, I really honestly, I can't believe that HBO believed in it so much um, and clearly is investing a lot of money into it because I mean, it looks very expensive and the the production design is very elaborate. Uh, I would only, I would only just qualify the, the absence of the show on the top 10 list this year by saying that I did watch season one and season one wasn't great for me. I, I having read a lot of your reviews, Ryan, of season two, I kind of see the perspective that I don't have being applied to this, like I, a lot of the, the kind of cinematic gestures that you uh, very astutely point out and uh, find gripping, I didn't spot in the first season and made me feel like it was just kind of a drab, slow, sluggish uh, foreign language series that I, I struggled to kind of get into emotionally. Um, so I, I recognize that this isn't a show for me, but I am also aware that it is exactly what it's trying to be like it's doing exactly what it wants to do and it's resonating with the people who uh who really enjoy that so i'm very happy that you are happy with well to your point of to your point i mean the first book is a lot of people i mean i, I was absorbed by it but a lot of people struggle with that first book because it's like you know, it's like they're little kids and like, if you don't care about children and maybe isn't that interesting and there's a lot, it's just like, it's throwing a lot of people at you. And, um, you know, uh, yes. who needs them? <laughs> and I, you know, actually people have tried to get to read the books or watch the show. You know, this is terrible advice. And like Elena Ferranti would hate that I said this, but I have told people like, if you really feel like you can't do it I think that you're okay to just jump into the second season and you'll eventually sort of get your bearings I will try I will get to it it's it's one that I actually like I think they gave four or five episodes when I first reviewed it and then I saw kind of the reaction to the rest of the season so I finished it like went back to it to try to finish it and I, I still it didn't change my mind a, a huge amount but obviously with you know uh each season to season and the different uh, stories that they're going to tell, you know, it's, it's worth checking it on. So uh, I'll get to it. 
Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. Yeah, so yeah. Us what television show you're most thankful for in 2020? Oh my gosh, so many um, shows. How would you like to get started? I am thankful for so many different things. Um, most of the things uh, I know Ben doesn't watch or... I don't even know if Ben acknowledges that they exist. Um, and that, that was kind of my theme when I was picking things, things Ben would not watch um, as he sits with his coffee mug, something, something he would nefariously kind of like maybe give the side eye to. That was my criteria for stuff. So uh, the so big- many to choose from. <laughs> God, I love this episode. This is already my favorite episode. Like why not- is that his every <laughs> I know what the title is. It's Ben Travers is an idiot, and here's why. <laughs> is um, that already ahead to the podcast, though? <laughs> We're gonna have very high li- listenership this week. Um, so the the big one that I I said helped me get through 2020, especially was the Drew Barrymore show. If you watch daytime television before Dr. Phil, um, Drew Barrymore got an hour time slot to do whatever she wanted. And it just makes me, and I know a lot of other people on Twitter, very happy because it would be, I think, how I would feel if I was given a TV show with absolutely no expectations or concept of how to do it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, an hour of watching Drew talk to her wall of virtual uh followers and have her dogs uh romp around on set she eats macaroni and cheese for no reason it makes yummy noises all the time and she has insightful conversations with her american girl uh, american girl doll courtney that is amazing um yes this is a show on television um that exists and it just, it makes, there's an element that you can make fun of, obviously, but at the same time, it's just wonderful to see somebody having such fun on television and create something that is so joyous and positive and just makes me feel happy every time I I watch it. So to Drew Barrymore, I say thank you for making 2020 uh, bearable for me. Um, okay, yeah. wait, 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 Christian, where do you land on the, uh, on the, on the, <laughs> the wedding? The wedding of the, the, the teacher and the student? Um, yeah. yeah. That yeah. seems, again, You need part- to be accountable. <laughs> you need I, to be, you are culpable I warned for you, this I warned wedding. you, Kristen. I told I you was, this would come I was, up. I was telling Leo that um, I it feels like something again that would happen on this show that they oh, would not bet properly and bring on some weird relationship that again has a a, a show of its own on FX um, that people can, Honestly, can watch. If you told me that girl was still seventeen and in high school, I'd been like, yep. yeah. Well, I remember watching it. Butters. I remember watching the the wedding live uh, a couple days ago and being like oh okay I don't really know much about because I came into the middle I came at the wedding part not like the talking about the relationship part but I I I just felt something was askew I was just like oh okay there's a story here I don't really know what it is and then the next 
the next day they were like, oh, they weren't mutual friends. They didn't meet through friends at school. It was, he taught at her school. He drew a paycheck and then married her. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and again, it's a television show created by people that are just like, we're going to give you a show. So it's like, yeah, that's that's a 2020 thing to have happened. Um, so, but I also wanted to give a shout out to the new take on on Supermarket Sweep that they put out on ABC, um, which apparently is turned into Supermarket Sweep After Dark um, because all of the games have this weird, like, sexual component about food. They did, like, a they did a, Wesley Jones had to say a question about something, this food does it, and it was pound cake. And we were just like, oh, okay, that's a decision. And like the green grocer guy that adds up all the food, every one-liner he has is like some sort of sexual double entendre. And I'm like, I want to know this guy's story. How did he come to work at this grocery store with Leslie Jones that everybody's running around in? Uh, it is delightful. Uh, at least it's delightful in the sense that I don't know how this exists on television, but I think that 2020 has proven to us that it's just throwing spaghetti at the wall and uh, seeing what sticks. Uh, and I also like the Save by the Bell reboot, which apparently Leo did not like. So explain yourself there. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, well, I will say it's growing on me, but it is a rough, it's a rough grow. I think there's, I think there's three shows. There's three shows that it's trying to be and it can't simultaneously be all three of them. I think there's this really great subversive comedy that feels the most like 30 rock and happy endings that is happening underneath everything else which at some point so, and that undermines the two other shows that are going on which is like nostalgia fest 2020 for like do you remember saved by the bell we do too and then there's this other show which is like we're trying to be a new saved by the bell for a new generation and i think those three things are very much at odds with one another and a lot of the acting is not great is sort of uh, I will not hear the smirchment about Elizabeth Berkeley. She has taken enough guff in her career, sir. Uh, but <laughs> then, then I won't be smirch on the pod. All right, Stephen. Steve Green, the recommendation machine. You're here. You're back. I am. Against all odds, I have returned. Uh, my my last appearance uh, touting the wonders of Major League Baseball did not get me banned for life from appearing. So thank you for that. Well, uh, I am here to explain why I am thankful for the third and final season of the Netflix series Dark. Uh, it is the German language sci-fi series uh, that premiered its last season at the end of June, uh, which in a odd uh, convergence of events uh, just so happened to be the date that in the timeline of the show, the world ended. So uh, that and the the fact that the show has kind of got this reputation for having a lot of characters and being a little bit hard to follow if you're not giving it your full undivided attention, uh, kind of drowned out the fact that this is a incredibly dense, rich emotional experience on top of all of the sci-fi gadgetry and, and machinations that are happening around it. And uh, I won't uh, give away any of the plot from the last season, uh, but uh, partly because if I tried to, it would take me like 15 minutes just to ruin anything. Uh, but broadly, the last episode of the series uh, involves characters that we have come to love and appreciate over the course of the show, uh, realizing that the the way to 
uh, sort of save everybody that they love is to make a sacrifice and watching them work through that decision and the choices that they make in light of what they know, uh, I found to be incredibly comforting, uh, especially at a time when, when people are asked to give up things or make concessions or make slight changes to the way they live. Uh, a lot of people view that as oppression or tyranny and to see these characters who we've come to love uh, see it as something different and something that uh, will benefit the most amount of uh, the people in their lives, uh, I found to be incredibly comforting. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's nice to see that even in this sort of fictional apocalypse, um, people can learn from the mistakes of past generations and, and decide to sort of break the never ending infinite cycle and, and try and forge a new way ahead. So that was, uh, I, I appreciate it dearly. And, uh, even if you, even if you have not seen a show and heard that and think that it's ruining the ending, uh, I assure you it's not because the, uh, the old cliche is true that that I think for this show, especially, it's in the journey, not the destination. Uh, it's 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 an incredibly rewarding show, and I hope that as as we sort of get under the shadow of sort of apocalyptic storytelling hitting a little too close to home, that uh, more people will find this. I look forward to rewatching all three seasons at some point in the future and uh, enjoying it just as much as I did this time. Is it worth a binge over this long weekend? I, I mean, I would someone. Can someone put away 26 hours of dark? I, I wouldn't recommend watching the whole series start to finish, um, but I, I do think in season chunks is helpful um, because there are there are season long arcs that I think are, uh, that, that you're able to track them a little better if you watch them closer together. But these seasons are self-contained in a way that even though season three references the first two seasons, um, and you definitely you definitely won't know what's happening if you just drop in right at the beginning of season three. But uh, I think if you, as long as you sort of are conscious of the broad strokes, if you watch season one, give yourself a little break, watch season two, give yourself a little break, watch season three, I think that's just as effective a way to watch it as, as just sitting down watching it start to finish. I like that you're finding so much comfort in a show that's literally called Dark. Like <laughs> 2020 keeps being described as pretty dark and pretty tough. And you're like, you know what we should watch that'll make you feel better? A show called Dark. Well, I, I think there, there's, and, and I, I wrote about this uh, when the show ended, uh, there's also the sort of the acknowledgement that um, even though a lot of the characters in the show sort of use the, use what, what the characters don't know for uh, evil ends, there are plenty of characters in the show that sort of give themselves over to the fact that like, there's just a lot of stuff that we don't know about this new situation that we're in. And rather than trying to steer it towards enriching ourselves or putting ourselves at sort of the top of this like new evolving power structure, we're gonna use the fact that we don't know what's going to happen to try and map out what is going to be a outcome that does the best amount of good for the most amount of people. And, and watching that sort of fight between two opposing sides between like, let's, let, let's try and, uh, let's try and break this cycle because then we can sort of come out on top or, or we can then break the cycle to then like try and like heal everybody and try and like give everybody a second chance. Uh, that's, that's I think an incredibly powerful like dynamic that evolves over those three seasons. 
Or you could just watch the first three seasons of Babylon Berlin over the weekend. <laughs> Which wow, does a lot of the same thing while uh, not having to jump around uh, from century to century. So, uh, yeah, I... I <laughs> And and in that you get to watch you get to watch beautiful people uh, do uh, great things on either beautiful show. Things. So so you really can't go wrong. Honestly, this is not just me just uh, blowing smoke. Uh, honestly, this podcast is something that I'm very thankful for in 2020. Uh, hearing you guys talk about the business and shows every week uh, has been an absolute delight. And as I'm cooking here in my kitchen, uh, you guys have played uh, very often and been a, a nice background noise to uh, everything that's going on. So thanks for that. See, I can't handle that level of sincerity pretty thank much you. at any time, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Recommendation Machine. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, Steve. And remember, Steve, you shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool <laughs> podcast. Ben, most of the people there said you were an idiot for not enjoying those shows. Uh, or I or I said no. you were an idiot. It was it was always present. That that feeling I I felt it consistently, which I think was what was important. But now I figure we take a moment to just each of each of us uh, throw out one show that we're we're thankful for that helped us get through the year. Uh, ben, you said you had one locked and loaded uh, earlier when you were talking about better things. W what show are you most thankful for in 2020? Um, so I'm going to put a slight twist on this and also do what Leo's about to do and copy uh, the list that we're kind of pseudo-promoting with this episode in what IndieWire is thankful for. And my thankful for pick was uh, Jude Law in general in 2020. Um, I will list all three of the projects that I'm particularly thankful for, starting with the movie, because this is a movie podcast. I'm very thankful that Jude Law did The Nest, co-starring a uh, friend of the pod, Carrie Coon. Um, it's a fantastic movie from Sean Durkin. Uh, Carrie Coon spends most of the movie smoking furiously and uh, like destroying the patriarchy, which I cannot recommend enough. It is available on VOD for a uh, rental rate. It's not one of the $20 movies. It's just like a $6.99 thing. So please do that. Um, but in terms of TV, Jude Law really pushed himself to, he has been for a while now, but 2020 kind of bottled it all up. He pushed himself to some really exciting creative extremes, starting with The New Pope, which uh, I don't think I've mentioned on this podcast before or to either no, of I, you, but I... What, what is The New Pope? I've never heard the, of the show before. Great question, Leo. The New Pope is uh, the follow-up limited series or second season of Paolo Sorrentino's Pope trilogy, or what will hopefully be a trilogy whenever HBO and Sky greenlight a third season. Um, but The New Pope is the follow-up to The Young Pope. Uh, it mainly stars John Malkovich, and it puts uh, Lenny, the Jew Law character's Pope from the first season, into kind of a supporting role. Um, but when he emerges when he is risen let's say uh the episode is nothing short of immaculate and what Jew law is able to do within it to kind of very quickly distill the essence that was like the rebellious unpredictable um somewhat power hungry and definitely old testament version of the young pope into this new version that has been uh you know, given a, a, a new lease on life, if you will, a new insight into the world, and then put himself to the test in a very serious way in which he has to kind of grapple with who he is and what he believes uh, in a very literal manner. 
And watching Jude Law kind of go through that experience as well as have these, you know, big kind of uh, philosophical and, and uh, arguments about belief with John Malkovic and these huge, beautiful recreations of like the Sistine Chapel. Um, it's just magnificent television. And it's, it's very exciting to see Jude kind of progress this person into a new realm. Uh, and then lastly, I'll try to wrap this up quickly. The third day was uh, the final Jude Law project that I wanted to highlight in that, again, I believe I t- we've talked about the live episode on this podcast before, and that's really kind of the, the high point where you have to recognize Jude Law had a hell of a year this year because I just would have never expected really anyone of his status, uh, let alone anyone who doesn't have to do something like this uh, for a paycheck, to go through the physical exertion and and toll that he has to go through for this 12-hour live episode where he is uh, he's sleeping, then he's woken up, he drags a boat to a beach, he's crowned in thorns, he's stripped naked, and he paddles out to a, a, a podium in the middle of the ocean, stands there for 15 minutes, and then just falls headfirst into an October British Isles ocean. Like, it, it's got to be cold, he has to be miserable. Like, it just looks... Horrible. It looks like zero fun whatsoever. And yet Law just loves it. Like you could tell how excited he is to go through all of this. And that's seen in so much of what he's doing. Like he's putting himself in these very weird positions. He's calling on like both the kind of identities that he's already forged as an actor through like the talented Mr. Ripley uh, and some of his more iconic roles and, and putting little twists on them and then also completely undercutting them. Um, so it's just, it's rebuilding this persona and rebuilding kind of how you see him as an actor and what you can expect. So that is, that is what I was very thankful for in 2020. I was thankful for Jude Law just going to the ends of the earth for our entertainment. Um, that was great. Shout out to 2019 Jude Law and his performance in Captain Marvel, which is arguably (laughs) my favorite thing about the movie. Um, he's just so weird and campy and into it. it it is very akin to to Kate Blanchett's turn in in um in the Thor, Thor, the good Thor the good Thor um, the good Lord Thor like to call it the good, good Lord, Lord Thor. Thor he's got the beard the good Thor bird <laughs> love it this is just my own thought is it possible that the Pope series is not really a show but a long con and subliminal advertising for Cherry Coke Zero <laughs> I mean, if it is, then uh, clearly the Coca-Cola company has underestimated its impact, and that's why we're running low on Cherry Coke Zero nationwide. Um, it's never but, at the stores, right? We can't. I'm having. I'm having a serious like that is the one thing my dad asked for for Christmas. He does not ask for anything for Christmas, and he's like, if you can find some Cherry Coke Zero, I would it love is, it. I'm like, it is near that. impossible to find. Normally, what you'll see is there's no two liters of it, but you'll get a twelve pack of cans. But you, you cannot find it's it's difficult to find a twenty ounce bottle in the little freezer. It's just it, for whatever reason there's a ton of demand and Coke isn't just produced. People love Cherry Coke Zero. I don't understand. I don't understand. All right. Well, Libby Ben got to wax philosophic on his uh, crush on Jude Law in 2020. Uh, what are you thankful for in the realm of television this year, and what helped you get through this year? You know, I will say, um, gosh, I that that's a different question than what I kind of prepped for, but oh, I will wait, say wait, that I'll, I'll rephrase it. How oh do no, you no, 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 that's okay. That's okay. The one thing that I one thing I really uh, appreciated this 
season this year is um, season three of Babylon Berlin. It's a show that I had just noticed that I had just been, um, I had, I, I just discovered this year uh, because I saw a lot of people in TV Twitter talking about it. Um, like, like the recommendation machine, it is another uh, German import with that is subtitled. But you know, uh, it's fine because uh, Parasite won Best Picture this year. So, so 2020 is the year of uh, subtitles anyway. Um, but it's set between World War One and World War Two in Germany. And um, there's so much going on in this show, but it's, it's very uh, luxurious. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's directed by, uh, or it's, it was created by the guy who directed Run Lola Run, um, Tom Twiker, Twi- yeah, I don't know. Um, the production designer is the same person who did the production design on The Queen's Gambit. Um, but it's about this um, detective who was in the war and, and has suffering from PTSD um, and is self-medicating. <laughs> and not self-medicating, but he is currently has, is, is being medicated for it. Um, but he's keeping his PTSD secret from people because um, vets, combat vets who are suffering are, um, are really looked down upon in, in society, um, more so than drug addicts, apparently. But uh, it also has this wonderful female detective who at night is a flapper. Um, like, like it's, it's just amazing. And it's, if, if I tell you, it's... Lynchian, but with a purpose. Um, it, like it's it's weird and fantastical and uh, trippy, uh, largely because probably the protagonist is a morphine addict, but um, in ways that make sense because what you're seeing is is the rise of fascism in the attempt to rebuild something that was broken, uh, which was resonant. Is very resonant this year. Um, so I recommend it to everyone. Well, not that anyone asked, but uh, the show that I'm going to stump for. <laughs> we I haven't had time you... yet, Leo. We haven't transitioned. The show that I wrote about for the, the feature Ben referenced uh, is the show that we've talked about six of the past seven weeks or seven of the past eight weeks. I forget. I lost count. Did we, we miss ta- a week? We didn't talk about it last week. Not a single Ted Lasso <laughs> reference last week, and I just spoiled it. It's Ted Lasso. Uh, a show that I had no expectations for and i think that's something i actually wrote in the blurb essentially is like it's a show that defies preconceived notions you think it's one thing and it and maybe it is exactly that thing but i just thought it was going to be eternally bad and thin because it is based on a razor thin premise of a of an ad for nbc sports coverage of the premier league but man it's somehow still was able to succeed with me it's sweet heartfelt filled with joy it's dumb but in the best ways it's incredibly earnest almost to a fault it like teeters on the edge uh and i mean i think it might have been the show that best i said i think i said something along lines like there's nothing that could be a salve for the festering wound that is 2020 but ted lasso might have come closest in terms of like what content can do it is the complete antithesis of what 2020 was in show form. Uh, and so I think that's why I, I you know, wrote about it. And I think 
everyone should give it a shot, at the very least. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts the classic YouTube video of Bjork talking about TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Anna Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Our favorite professional chess players are Huya Fan, Anna Rudolph, and Vera Menchik. Our Millions of Screens famous fictional chess player endorsement is Jerry from Jerry's Game. The Pixar show. G-E-R-I. Also, I apologize if I mispronounce any of those actual professional chess players that Ben... Almost certainly. Read. At least one of them was chosen specifically because it would challenge you. Yeah. And I do not have the correct answers, and I apologize. But you should look them all up. They're all famous female chess players who obviously uh, were probably, I would assume, studied for the Queen's Gambit in some capacity. So They at least know what it is. Yes. Chess. Yes. Do you, think, do you think the Queen's Gambit is hindering people who have ceiling fans because they can't play chess on the ceilings of their uh, bedrooms? <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire at Ben T. Travers and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.